Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman, a collaborative podcast with Pass It On Network. This program is brought to you by all of Community Services. Seniors deserve to have a fulfilling life with dignity and respect, but as we transition into our elderhood years, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here is Phyllis Amon. Welcome to Senior Straight Talk, where we present informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm Phyllis Amon, your host. The show, which began in September of 2019, was formerly known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy, and the library of all of the episodes can be found on the Voice America Empowerment Channel under the name Senior Straight Talk and can be downloaded on popular podcast platforms. The show is now also syndicated on the Voice America Influencers Channel. So please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. You can hear the short news tidbits of interest to seniors, their families, and the general public on my YouTube channel at Phyllis Amon Associates. When visiting the channel, please remember to like, share, and subscribe to Senior News for Today. I now have two courses, which can be found on my website at www.phyllisamonassociates.com. For those listeners who are in SOS mode, Stressed, Overwhelmed, and Stretched. Resilience Toolbox Secrets will help you capture the three R's, recharge, reset, and recommit. Family members considering taking on the role of caregiver or those just beginning the caregiver journey can find valuable information in my latest course, A Caregiving Guide for Caregivers, The Basics. And look out for my new course coming soon, Coming Alive with Music and Communicating Effectively with Persons Having Dementia, who I am proud to say I created with Dan Cohen, founder of Music and Memory and Right to Music. My latest book, Dignity and Respect, Our Aging Parents Getting What They Deserve, is available on Amazon in both paperback and ebook formats. Dr. Bill Thomas wrote the foreword for the book, which addresses critical information about how we care for and treat our elder citizens in our families, our communities, in nursing homes and assisted living residences. I hope you'll purchase a copy and encourage your friends and colleagues to do the same. I appreciate your support and hope you'll spread the word on this all important topic. Senior Straight Talk is proud of the collaborative partnership with the Pass It On Network, a global peer learning network for positive aging advocates and a member of the United Nations Open-Ended Working Group on Aging. Senior Straight Talk and Pass It On Network will continue bringing our listeners informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. And I'm so glad to welcome our sponsor, Olive Community Services, a nonprofit organization in Fullerton, California, dedicated to providing culturally appropriate services to the diverse, diverse senior population. Before we begin, I have to thank Peter DeGear of DeGear Therapy Services, who is a colleague and consultant specializing in rehabilitation therapy services in nursing homes. And now it's my utmost pleasure to introduce today's extraordinary guest, Dr. David Grabowski, who I'm extraordinarily grateful to for writing a beautiful testimonial for my book, Dignity and Respect. Dr. David Grabowski is a professor of healthcare policy in the Department of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School. His research examines the economics of aging with particular interest in the areas of long-term care and post-acute care. 
Dr. Grabowski has been the principal investigator on five grants from the National Institute on Aging on projects related to the value of post-acute care, skilled nursing facility payment, demand for long-term care insurance, specialization in dementia care, and nonprofit provision of nursing home care. And his research has been supported by a number of private foundations, including the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Commonwealth Fund, Arnold Foundation, and the Donahue Foundation. And Dr. Grabowski has also led a team at Harvard in the evaluation of payment models used by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So with that, I'd like to introduce to you David Grabowski. Great. So, thanks, Phyllis. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back and uh, congratulations on the book. I was so excited to receive my copy. Oh, thank you. I can't thank you enough. The, uh, if anybody picks up a copy of it, um, the testimonial you wrote is just, um, it, it brings tears to my eyes just to think about it. It was really very touching. So I, I really uh, appreciate it. Sure. Well, well deserved. Well deserved. Oh, thanks so much. And I look back for when we had the conversation the first time, and um, it was last August. And so at that time, the situation was very different about COVID. We talked about COVID in nursing homes and long-term care. So now the situation turns to vaccines. It's a very different conversation. So what can you tell us about what's going on uh, with that nationally, but you're in Massachusetts. So I don't know if you want to talk about Massachusetts specifically or the situation natural nationally, because there's so many different things going on in different parts of the country. Sure. So uh, we are, I think things have changed a lot since August, but in many ways things are, are, are still the same and that uh, we're still working really hard to protect uh, older adults and, and their caregivers and um, the, the vaccination effort uh, it's it, no one ever thought this was going to be easy uh, we know we have 30,000 facilities uh, around the country when you combine nursing homes and assisted living uh, millions of uh, nursing home residents assisted living residents and their caregivers so uh, this isn't a case where you can set up a vaccination clinic and just have everyone come to that, that clinic. We really have to bring the, the clinic to 30,000 different locations around the country. And I, I, I think we're making progress, but I, I'll, I'll say a few things. First, I think the, the, the vaccination effort definitely got off to a very slow start. Uh, that was true here in Massachusetts, and it was true in most other states. Uh, one of the few exceptions was actually West Virginia, which opted out of the, the, the federal partnership, and they actually led the nation in uh, getting their, their residents and staff vaccinated. And I, I think one of the lessons from West Virginia is that even though the federal program has relied on CVS and Walgreens, which are two very large companies, they're not so large that they have an unlimited number of staff and, and pharmacists that they can deploy to these nursing homes. Um, there was, a, there was a, uh, kind of a bandwidth problem in terms of setting up these clinics, whereas West Virginia, they relied on lots of local pharmacies and were able to move very quickly. Uh, in terms of the federal partnership program, we've had states like Florida where I, I know it hasn't worked great, and then we have a state like Connecticut where the federal partnership program has apparently worked very well. So as you suggested in your question, a lot of it is local. 
One of the, the constants, however, across all parts of the country has been vaccine hesitancy on the part of staff. Uh, that, that can vary quite a bit from facility to facility, but um, in general, we're seeing in, in the best data that are available, about 80 to 85% of residents getting vaccinated, but a much lower share of staff choosing, choosing to get vaccinated. Uh, on average, I think our best data suggests maybe half of all staff are, are, are getting vaccinated. And once again, that can vary considerably from facility to facility with some facilities as high as you know, 80 or 85 percent of staff, others as low as 20 or 25 percent. So um, I, I'd love to kind of get into this more, but uh, Phyllis, if I had to uh, think about one area where we have a lot of work left to do here, it's really around getting more of our, our caregivers vaccinated. I agree with you. There was an article in the New York Times as a matter of fact, I uh, was it yesterday, it was part of my senior news for today, which is the fact that uh, some states are finding that they had a, a surplus supply of vaccines because people were refusing them, whether it was staff or residents. And so therefore they are diverting some of those vaccine doses from the nursing homes to other areas of, you know, of the community. And um, I'm just wondering about that. I guess we have to do a better job in educating and maybe who's doing the educating. As a matter of fact, I think you, you tweeted something about that today. And I think that was my response about that article. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, that was my response that definitely. Yeah, we, we have both of those issues, we have a, a, an education or information problem, but we also have a trust and relationships problem. And so let's take each of those in turn. There's a tremendous amount of misinformation out there about uh, the vaccine. Uh, I think there's a lot of concerns on the part of staff about safety, about side effects. So I, I definitely think there's a, a lot we can do with, with education and outreach. And I think we're doing that. However, I think while that's necessary, it's not sufficient. And what do I mean by that? I think we need to not just build uh, the, the information set, we also need to, to build trust. And trust isn't something that's built overnight, unfortunately. In a, in a nursing home where I think the, the staff and uh, leadership have a, a strong relationship and there's a lot of trust there, I think, you know, yeah, you're kind of rolling your eyes right now. Does that facility exist? But there are some out there. Um, there are very few. But in those facilities, I think vaccination rates are much higher uh, when we compare that with a facility where we have very little trust. And um, once again, you can't just build that overnight with a pizza party or something. Or, uh, yeah, this is something that was built from years and years of uh, kind of, uh, you know, work together and, and uh, you know, investment in this relationship. And so mm -hmm. I, I've argued that if, that if there isn't trust in leadership in that facility, who can we kind of use or, or leverage to, to help message that, that the vaccine is safe and effective? And, you know, maybe that's a, that's a clinical leader in or, in or around the, the, the building. Maybe that's a staff member who's particularly trusted. Maybe that's some, someone from a national leadership organization. Uh, there, there's, there's a group such as the National 
Association of Healthcare Assistants that Lori Porter runs nationally. There are groups like that where we could have those groups doing the messaging. And one of my argument is that it's, it's not just the message we're, we're, we're telling caregivers, it's who's delivering that message. And we need to change who's delivering that message in some instances, in addition to giving them the message that the vaccine is safe and effective. So uh, you touched on the fact that I was rolling my eyes. So even though this is going to be an audio, we are doing it via Zoom. So <laughs> you can see me. I'm glad you made that reference in a way because I come from this space of working in 50 nursing homes over 45 years, as soon as you talk about leadership and trust, um, that rings such a familiar bell for me because, and that's something that, that I'm becoming um, much more vocal about, uh, and that is, what is the mindset? And I don't know that you could change a person's mindset, or maybe it depends uh, what motivates them if they wanna change their mindset, if they see a, a need or a reason to change it, but but leadership is really crucial. It's key, and um, you know I think it's it's a problem in a lot of nursing homes. Uh, you know who's in charge of the nursing home, what their motivation is, and I think their motivation sometimes uh, gets in the way of, or I should say, impacts the way they they lead or how they interact with staff. And, and I've uh, addressed this in my book and talked about it. I'm not the only person. Certainly, a lot of people who work in nursing homes as um, caregivers are from other kinds of other populations, you know, minority communities. And, and you know, if the leadership is from one sector and the people providing care are from another it already there's already a barrier i think for trust there so i think uh you know what you said maybe it takes an outside por uh, person i just reached out to Lori porter on linkedin and i sent her an email so i'm hoping to connect with her uh around this issue and others I, I, absolutely and i i i think Lori would say and hopefully uh if she was a guest here and she, she, she would agree that we, we've had this longstanding leadership gap here where I, I don't feel as if we've treated staff very well for this is this long predates the uh, pandemic and it's a policy problem and it's a leadership problem in, in long-term care that we've underpaid these staff who are predominantly women as you said, uh, persons of color, recent immigrants to the U.S., they're paid at or near minimum wage, um, few benefits like paid sick leave or health insurance. So uh, we've, we've marginalized this, this, this group of caregivers for a long time. Uh, the pandemic starts. Um, we don't often give them hazard or hero pay. Uh, they're putting their lives and their families' lives on the line by going into to work every day. They're working in the most trying of conditions. Uh, limited personal protective equipment, limited testing in these buildings. So you can see how this this trust issue <laughs> wasn't wasn't exactly strong. And then all of a sudden, hey, guess what? You're first in line to get this vaccine. And I think uh, a lot of staff said, hold on a second. I, I, I've been at the back of the line for a long time here and overlooked and under valued and now all of a sudden you want me to take this vaccine first and I, I, I want to wait a little bit and um, maybe maybe see, see how things go. So one of my hopes is that even though a lot of staff initially declined the, the, the vaccine, many of them are beginning to, to take it on these subsequent clinics. And this actually raises a really interesting issue in that 
the federal program consists of three vaccine clinics per facility. What happens to those staff who declined it early on but later want to get it? What happens to new staff that, that are hired in? We know there's tremendous uh, turnover in the workforce. What happens as new residents come into the building? And so I, I, I know the state of Ohio has, has put a program in place to continue with vaccinations after the federal program ends. My hope is that the federal government and other states will also implement similar programs because our work isn't done when the federal program ends. We have, we have to continue to, to vaccinate staff and, and residents to protect uh, individuals in this. In this I, I think that also part of the reason that uh, especially certified nurse aides and, uh, aren't valued is because the tasks that they do are looked at as very custodial type of tasks, helping people with eating, bathing, toileting, um, showering. Uh, but the reality is, from my perspective, is that they actually has a clinical component to it. And the, the uh, certified nurse aide should be valued from that point of view because, and I do write about this, that they actually have to make very um, critical judgments that they report to a nurse or they report to a doctor, but they are the ones who really can see when a resident has a change in condition, a change in mood, a change in appetite, a change in skin color, um, a, a, many changes, right? That would indicate a change in their condition that requires attention. So those are actually uh, critical uh, decisions that a caregiver has to make. And I will say as a speech pathologist, that was my role in, in nursing homes. When I had to evaluate a person, the first person I went to speak to was the certified nurse aide. And I'd ask them questions. And very often they'd say, well, you're the professional. Why are you asking me? I said, because you're with the resident, you know them better. It's really no different than when a parent takes their child to the doctor and the doctor turns to the parent and asks about all of these different areas of functioning. So I think my opinion is that if they were looked at differently for what they do, that that could help the situation if they were valued for the role that they play rather than like a means to an end, like, well, you're caring for people so we could get paid kind of thing. No, absolutely. We need to uh, reimagine and and sort of uh, change how we, how we view this profession for, for exactly the reason you suggest that nobody's closer to these residents, nobody knows the, the residents any, any better than, than their caregivers. And beyond that, if, if activities of daily living, if, the, if, these, if these tasks aren't being done every day, uh, there's gonna be a huge decline in uh, their, their uh, well-being and their health. Uh, if you're not being bathed every day and fed and toileted, it's just on and on and on. Like that, that's, that's at its core. Those are, you, know, you, can't, you can't live without those. And so I, I, I always balk when someone says they're not part of the care team. Of course, they're, they're, they're the most important part of it. They're doing the most important task in this building. Like if those don't happen, uh, really bad things happen. And we've seen that during during this pandemic and before the pandemic that in facilities that were far understaffed that just got overwhelmed 
uh, things deteriorated so quickly that they had to they had to take residents to other buildings and bring in strike teams, and it just th- things things get out of control very quickly if you don't have sufficient numbers of, of caregivers. So I, 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 they're a core part of the team, and and facilities that treat them as such. I I, I really believe you, you know you 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 actually. Um, uh, engage them, you keep your staff uh, employed at that, at that uh, facility longer. Uh, I think they feel more valued. Uh, t- to your point about, you know, asking them about changes in condition, the, the Interact toolkit that Joe Oslander uh, designed in nursing homes, we've done some similar work in the home care setting. Uh, nobody knows, uh, you know, the condition of uh, the, these uh, older adults better than their caregivers. And so leveraging that information is, is so important uh, to, their, to their health. And uh, the, the feedback we've gotten very similar to what, to what you relayed about uh, your discussion with, with the certified nurse aide is every time we've asked direct caregivers about their experience, they're one shock because nobody's ever asked them before. And, and, and two, that they have a ton to say and they really know the resident because um, they're, they're with them every day and uh, you know, understand what's a, what's a true change and, and what's part of their kind of uh, natural course of their, of their day. You know, I just want to, uh, I, I like to bring my personal experience into it. So I, I'm going to speak on just for a moment on, on two parts of this. So I w- worked in a facility about a year or so ago. So they asked me to come help out. A speech pathologist left and they asked me to help out. I had worked there many times over the years. And um, I was there just a few days and I started noticing, as I say, from, from my scope of practice, there were issues with the food consistencies and problems. There were real issues that could be harmful to to residents. And when I started talking about it and asking the certified nurse aides, you know, how long has this been going on? And, you know, have they told anybody? They said, well, nobody listens to us. We've been talking about this for years. This was, and this is people's health and well-being. This, this is a terrible, terrible thing. Of course, they did listen to me. And even I, as a person who just came to the facility, I wasn't the most popular in the beginning. It took somebody who knew me who was further up in the organization to, to, to indicate that this was, they should really make some changes. I'll just say it that way. And the other thing is talking about leadership. The, um, in this particular building, uh, nobody ever saw the administrator. And when the administrator came to a, a unit or an area in the building, people were all thinking that maybe they did something wrong as opposed to seeing this person on a regular basis. And it was Christmas time, and he really was very visible at that time because he was trying to get people to go to the Christmas party. But (laughs) people can see through that. And, um, you know, I have an example in my book of one of the best examples I ever saw of leadership. I talk about it. It's like 15 years later of an owner who did rounds four times a week in a building. He knew the residents. He knew the staff. He'd ask their names and how they're their son was doing or their mother or their vacation. Uh, so Pete, he had tremendous loyalty. It's just what we're talking about. If people feel that you're invested with them and you care about them, they'll be invested with you and then they'll trust you. Uh, we, we've seen that time and time again, Phyllis, during this pandemic of good leadership. And I think there's been owners that have made huge investments to really protect residents and, and staff. And yes, we, we, there's a tendency to want to focus on the, the, the bad actors. And, and we've had some, 
some some terrible cases as well during this pandemic. But I, I think in, in the in the facilities with with strong leadership models, uh, I, that they've absolutely done done better. And I you know I I I love reading those stories as as I'm certain you do as well of just like how owners have and and, and operators and uh, you know leadership has really. Uh, step forward, whether it's acquiring personal protective equipment, uh, having, having, you know, there were some instances early on of staff living on site and just, you know, set, setting up hazard pay and hero pay and um, really, uh, you know, get, giving, giving staff paid, paid sick leave and, and really stepping up for the, for the staff. And I, I my, my hope is that um, going forward, we, we, we don't just have to rely on, you know, we, we need good leadership in this sector, but we also need good policy. And I, I, I think in, we didn't just have a leadership failure, we had a policy failure with, with this pandemic where we didn't, we, we, we really forced uh, the facilities to go out and acquire the personal protective equipment and the testing and uh, come up with the dollars in some instances to pay their staff. And I, I, I really wish we had put uh, better policies in, in, in place to facilitate those those uh, those actions. Yeah, before we go to a break, uh, I have often said, while we can point to facilities about not having sufficient PPE, and I was uh, working in a building, I was covering there for just a, a couple of weeks in a building that had everything from from head to toe for everybody in the building, and I applaud that that owner and that administrator who saw the need for it early on. But no no nursing home would have ever foreseen needing this amount of PPE. Um, They wouldn't have needed it. They wouldn't have had it on hand. They wouldn't have, there would be no reason for them to think that they would have this amount of or have this need for this amount of personal protective equipment. So while we may point to some of them, maybe some of them didn't have it because they didn't want to spend that kind of money. And I certainly know of a few of those, but I think once everybody was clamoring for PPE, they, they nobody could even get it. So that in part and parcel was the situation with COVID and the spreading of the COVID. I mean, I was in a place where wearing a poncho for, for a while. And before I said, you know, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore, but that's, I don't know what the situation was. Could they not get it? Did they not want to pay for it? But they wouldn't have never, they wouldn't have ever had to need it, which is the point. Absolutely. We were uh, slow to, to, supply uh, personal protective equipment to facilities and so we really left it to the to the facilities themselves to acquire it it, it, it created an untenable situation we uh, the, the market works well for a lot of things but uh, in the middle of a pandemic having you know kind of letting the market work this out for which facilities could find PPE and which, which couldn't uh, and and paying these absorb, exorbitant prices, it just it just wasn't the right model. We should have we should have centralized this very early on. Yeah, I agree. So on that note, we're going to take a short break, and we'll come back, and probably the discussion will veer to some other topics related to uh, nursing homes and long term care. So we'll be right back on Senior Straight Talk. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high-quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. All of Community Services is a 501c3 that provides culturally appropriate services to seniors, their family, and the community. Through their interactive programs, Olive engages participants physically and mentally with a focus on building strength, mobility, and mental health. To learn more, get involved, or make a donation, visit olivecs.org. Together, let's live, learn, and thrive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the host at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now back to Senior Straight Talk. Welcome back to Senior Straight Talk. I'm here with Dr. David Grabowski. We're talking about long-term care. Uh, We were talking about the pandemic, the virus, vaccines, healthcare workers, leadership, everything to do with uh, nursing homes, really. But I, I really wanted to turn our attention to a conversation about uh, that assisted living isn't often associated with long-term care. And what's your experience with that? Yeah, assisted living is, is, is different. And in many ways, assisted living grew as this, this response to many of us not wanting a nursing home. We, we all, and I think we all wanted something different. And so assisted living really grew on the backs of individuals paying out of pocket. And so I think it, uh, you know, from, from a lot of different fronts, it's been viewed as, as a success in a lot of ways, uh, you know, from a, a sort of an individual's perspective, I, I, they didn't have to go to a nursing home, at least for some period of time, they could have increased autonomy potentially in, a, in an assisted living community. Uh, from a from a government perspective, this might be a good thing. They're paying out of pocket. They're not they're not paying <laughs> you know with with Medicaid dollars. And then obviously a lot of owners and and investors and operators have 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 done well on this model. Uh, you know, too. I, I think that wasn't the question you asked. Or you asked, no, is this long-term okay. care? No, no, no. I, I, but I, but I, I wanted to circle around and say, like, is this, you know, I, and I think you've exactly hit, hit the nail on the head. Uh, you know, the, the old rap on assisted living is that it's been light on the assisted and strong on the living. And I think that's the, that's the real concern here. And I think we've seen this uh, bubble up during the pandemic in that, for years and years, assisted living has kind of wanted a different treatment. We, we don't have government payment here, so we don't want government regulation. We don't want to be nursing home light. We, we want to be assisted living, which is very different. Yet, with the pandemic, I, I think we quickly saw not just nursing homes being overwhelmed, but some, some assisted living facilities as well. It, it, it's a different 
population than, than nursing homes, but there's a lot of overlap. Uh, there, there's, as, as, as you well know, there's memory care units, lots of um, individuals living in these communities with dementia, um, really uh, some really intensive care needs for a lot of residents. And in many kind of communities, some are, are more spread out, but many kind of are, are, are clustered and really at risk of, of major outbreaks similar to what we've seen in, in nursing homes. We don't have the oftentimes the double occupancy rooms like we might at a, at a nursing home, but it is still um, uh, an at-risk population living in, in close quarters. All of them, uh, you know, Medicare beneficiaries, all of them, you know, vulnerable older adults, and, and they, they have, you know, their caregivers that, that need protection as well. But I think we've been a lot slower to kind of move to, to implement uh, uh, policies for assisted living. I, I don't think we've been particularly quick with nursing homes, but at least there's been kind of, I, I think, a, a, you know, a, a real, there's, there's a data infrastructure there now. I think there were a lot of steps uh, to, to, to actually put resources in place. Um, it, it was slow, but we eventually got there. I, I like that assisted living was included in the vaccination plans. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, they're, they're behind nursing homes, but I think that was, that was really important. And I, I, I do think, kind of stepping back from the, the pandemic, I do think we're going to see kind of some uh, shift in, in how we view kind of assisted living. And I... I I, I don't. I don't ever want to make this nursing home light, but I, I do think we need to revisit what are the services, what are the clinical models, what is what is kind of the, the the care that's being delivered. In some ways, these are these are people that are paying out of pocket with their own money. Medicaid does pay for a little bit of services, but by and large, it's it's private pay. But if if we're gonna uh, um, have individuals living in these communities and uh, you know, Medicare in many instances is covering their healthcare services. Uh, do, do we want to think about what what if this if this model is um, gonna gonna continue? And uh, do do we want to think about a stronger sort of long term care model that 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 we might be able to provide? And you 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 could respond to say, well, isn't that a you know this is what these individuals wanted when they went into they didn't want nursing homes, and I. My response is always they didn't want a traditional nursing home. They 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 do want kind of community. They do want care. They do want engagement. They do want purpose in their life. Uh, they they want their goals of care met. So it, it, it's um, I, I I'm I'm not convinced that um, it's simply uh, they don't want to they they don't want to uh, be in a nursing home. They don't want to be in an institutional nursing home like we've always had in this country. So how do we build that, that, that sector we all want from assisted living? Because I think there's such potential there. Oh, so do I. I've, I've asked a, a few people in, in conversation, is there a way to kind of take that model? And that's a different concept than the greenhouse model in a way, which is a, a nursing home a type of uh, living situation. Assisted living is more socialized and... Um, Usually people have less intense care needs in an assisted living, although there are assisted livings that are now providing more kinds of care. And then there are people who do need more intense care. And then some people hire private duty uh, caregivers to be with those people so they can remain in the assisted living community. Uh, but there are a range of services that, that assisted livings now provide. Uh, I'm wondering if, if you took the concept of a nursing home 
Um, and, and the word nursing, by the way, I think is part and parcel of it being institutional. Um, I think that's, that's part of it. And of course, we all know that not everybody in a nursing home needs 24-hour skilled care. So that's a whole other thing about money follows the person and people being able to remain in the community and get a lot of those services. But is there a way to have kind of like a step system in a, um, I've been thinking about this for a while, kind of like a step system for a nursing home, just like there's a continuum of care community where somebody goes into independent living, then maybe assisted, and then maybe they do have a go to memory care or they do have nursing home uh, beds uh, on that, in that system, I know a couple of those. Is there a way to do that in the nursing home space? Uh, and what would that look like in terms of reimbursement if people have less care needs? What do you think? I, I would love to see kind of us break this, this institutional model and your sort of graduated model. I, I would love to see it just move away from, from nursing homes altogether. And if, if there's individuals living in, in uh, the nursing home setting that could um, better receive care in the homework community, by all means, uh, we should do that. And th this graduated model kind of on site, I think that's th those continuing care retirement communities you refer to, ha I think have worked relatively well. The problem is they're, they're fairly high end places. They haven't been accessible to a, a, a lot of us. They've been, I, I think just a small share of, of the market, but the communities I've, I've visited, I, I generally think are quite good in terms of, you know, as you described, that more of that socialization and uh, um, kind of uh, a social model for, for uh, healthier older adults and then kind of this graduated model. But the key to me is that each of those models, you know, are, are you feeling purpose? Um, uh, is, is this about the, 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 the resident uh, directing their care or their family members if, 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 if they're no longer able to from a cognitive perspective? How do we ensure that this is, this is still about the resident and not about the, the facility? And how do we guard against that sort of institutional mindset? Uh, I, I, you know, we're, we're always, I, I should say, we're always going to need nursing homes in the U.S. That's not a popular thing to say. People don't like it when I say that, but there's not a, there's not an industrialized country in the world that, that doesn't have nursing homes, even those that spend like the Netherlands or Sweden that spend a lot more money than the U S they, they still have nursing homes. They just have much better nursing homes than we right. do. And they, they feel like, they feel like home. And right. that, that's, that's the nursing homes I want here. And if, if we're going to pay for this, let's, 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 let's buy what we all want. Not, not this uh, institutional set of services. So, I'm thinking as we're speaking that if there are more people that can remain at home through the Money Follows the Person program and Medicaid dollars that people can use in, in their home setting, in the community setting and, and receive services there. And then there are fewer people therefore in nursing homes, although as the older population increases, that may not be the case, but just let's say there are fewer people that have to go into that traditional skilled nursing facility type of space, would there then be more dollars available for those uh, facilities because there would either be less people in those facilities or maybe less of those facilities in this country? Um, just came to me as we're speaking. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a great idea. So, so 
but uh, so, so two parts to this one, I think shifting individuals out of nursing homes and then taking the remaining individuals uh, that, that do want or need to be in a nursing home and spending more on them and giving them the kind of care we're, we're discussing, Phyllis. I love that idea. I still think we're going to need to increase spending on home and community-based care. I, I, I just don't think we can get by with the existing budget. Oh, I agree. I, I think we need to, I, I agree with you, transform how we spend our nursing home dollar on f- spending more on fewer individuals, making it this more home-like setting. But then on home and community-based care, I think we're going to have to find more money. That's going to be challenging in a post-pandemic uh, world where, uh, we're going to need to spend money on lots of things from, you know, education to mm-hmm. you, you name it. Uh, lots of, lots of different social programs are going to require uh, attention and, and, and resources. But, you know, I, we, we've, you know, I mentioned these Northern European countries, if you look at how they spend money, uh, how they spend their healthcare dollar, I should say, a lot less of it is, is going to the hospital and, and, and other parts of the system. And a lot more of it's going to long-term care and, I think we need to have that challenging conversation in the U.S. about where does that marginal dollar go? And I would love to see us pulling some of that spending out of, out of healthcare broadly and putting it into, into long-term care specifically, because I, I think that's where you find the, the additional dollars. But um, uh, the, the old line, every, every dollar you take out of one part of the healthcare system is a right. dollar you're taking out of somebody's income. And that, that's, that's never easy. So I, that, 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 that would be my hope, though, is that you're, you're, you're finding new dollars. Cause I, I do think as a, as a sector, we underfund home and community-based care. And I was really excited when the Biden administration mentioned, you know, putting, you know, everybody who's currently on the wait list for Medicaid home and community-based services, giving them uh, services. That, that was really exciting. I, right. I hope they, they see that through. Yeah, I agree. You know, through the years, uh, my specialty uh, in nursing homes originally was working with people who are ventilator dependent or who have trachs. And um, I've seen people, now those people require a lot of care. Let's face it. I mean, that's a, a very serious, precarious situation because either you're breathing and you're with us or you're not and you're not. Um, and I've seen people go home who are ventilator dependent uh, just a few months ago, somebody asked me to go visit somebody to, to do a, a home visit um, for a gentleman who l- lived a distance from me. He has a trach. He's at home and uh, he needed some help with speaking and his speaking valve and the family needed some assistance. So I went. Um, this gentleman is at home. Um, he has care 24 hours a day. Uh, he has a uh, uh, a son who comes every uh, few days, I think, or every once in a while, and uh, his daughter, I don't know if she lives there or not, but, and the mother is also there as she has some advancing cognitive decline. And so there's one person there for her, and there's a nurse there for him because he has a trait. So it's possible. Oh, it, it's, it's absolutely possible. And it, it, it's a matter of, of, will do, do we have the political will do we do we uh uh want to find the dollars to, to make this happen i i, I hope we do because uh, I, I, I i there's a lot of these stories and indeed i think they're 
a, a lot of programs and models out there that, that uh, allow individuals to get, get care where they want to get care. And that's not to say everybody can be transitioned out. I, I said this earlier, I'll say it again. We're always going to have nursing homes, but I, I know we could care for a lot more individuals in the community. Yeah, no, I agree. And then that brings up another issue. Uh, as that happens, because there are nursing homes now who are people don't want to go to nursing homes. So they're feeling the challenge of filling their nursing homes, which is in turn going to affect the people that are they're hiring, the number of people that are hiring, and will those people have jobs? So of course, if there are more people home, they can transition transition to a home care setting. But then the, the question exists, uh, there are all these nursing homes, are some of them not going to be able to remain financially viable, same with assisted livings. What do you think about that? Uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting, Phyllis, to see the decline in occupancy. Uh, and there's been a lot of speculation about when, if and when that will bounce back. And my, my sense with, with nursing homes is it, some of it, some of the, the occupancy will come back, but it's not going to return to pre-pandemic levels. And so uh, I, I do think we're going to see some consolidation in uh, the nursing home sector. We'll see some nursing homes close in, in certain markets. And we'll, we'll also see potentially some of the capital uh, changing, uh, you know, with hopefully uh, smaller homes and, and, you know, sort of facilities that are more consistent potentially with what a lot of consumers want. And I think the idea that you can uh, convince consumers to, to go to a, a nursing home where it's three or four to a room or two to a room, share a room and, that, and these kind of clustered hallways that those days are hopefully over. Cause I, 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 I think if there's a kind of any positive outgrowth of this pandemic, it's that it's really opened all of our eyes to, to what was happening in nursing homes. You've been in a lot of nursing homes, Phyllis, you know, this, that it, it it's, these are not like, you know, it, it it's just, it's appalling. And people almost in disbelief have said, wait a second, we, we asked older adults to, to share rooms. I said, yeah, what did you think semi-private meant? It's this terrible, <laughs> terrible word we use in, in, in nursing homes, but it basically means double occupancy shared rooms. That's what that means. And we, we need to change that. And so I, I, my, my hope is that we're going to see some, some changes, but the response from industry I get when I say this is always the same. We've got to pay for that. And I, I, I think that's right. Um, I think part of that is increasing transparency and in how dollars are being spent in this sector. But I agree, it, it, it's, it's more expensive to run a, a smaller nursing home with single occupancy rooms. And um, as, as long as we're able to follow the money, so to speak, I, I'm all for, for paying them more to do that. Well, and there's so much that comes into that conversation that we can't even get to about the transparency and the real estate and all of the you know, the, the different, uh, how the money is siphoned to different uh, companies. With, we, yes. we won't go there. But, um, <laughs> but um, and when you talk about double occupancy, occupancy, I often explain to people, like, would you just uh, go rent an apartment someplace uh, with somebody else that was living there that you never met before? You don't know them, you know nothing about them, and someone says you have to live here? Uh, no, you would not do that. So why are we doing that to older people who, especially sometimes when you get older, you know, you, well, we all have our habits and our likes and our dislikes, uh, whether it's a, a loud television or no music or whatever it is. Um, you know, it creates such a difficult situation for people. And I don't even know that it's from all the buildings I've been in. You know, they, they have 
you're supposed to go speak to the residents and tell them they're getting a new roommate. And, you know, is that always happening? I don't really know. Uh, I can't really say that it is. But some of it is just expedience. And some of it has to do with finances. You know, a person can't move into this room because this bed um, gets reimbursement from a certain source and their reimbursement isn't from that source. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it and, and that's how rooms get changed around. And so people lose their whole sense of their, their personhood, I'll say. Uh, it, it's really a very difficult situation. Even if we think of reimagining nursing, traditional nursing homes as they are now with a more person-centered approach, with a, with a different mindset, with different leadership, they, they can't architecturally change their double person rooms to single person rooms, especially if let's say there are 200, 200 um, let's say it's a 200 bedded facility. So then they have 200, assuming it's full, they have income from 200 people. So uh, how would they remain viable if they now only had income from 100 people? Yeah, no, this, this is the, the real estate problem in long-term care and nursing homes in particular. Most facilities in, in major markets were built over 30, 40 years ago. Right. And they're these old <laughs> uh, two-to-a-room, the long hallway. Right. You know, we, we've all been in lots of those facilities and uh, we need to change that. And that, once again, is going to take money to, to knock those buildings down or to kind of go in and retrofit and them. It, it's, down, I mean, and especially yeah. in urban areas, that's even more difficult. Now, I oh, will yeah. say one of the most beautiful, and I know there are many around the country, but I happen to have visited uh, this one, two of them, uh, in Chelsea, which is the Leonard Florence Center for Living, which is the first urban greenhouse. And then Barry Berman went and transformed Chelsea Jewish, which is where his mother was, where he moved her from. And he, and he, and he redesigned it as best as he could, according to a greenhouse model, maintaining this structure, uh, the original structure. And it's really quite a place, but there aren't that many of them. I know they are in different parts of the country. And then people are uh, taking that philosophy and trying to superimpose it on the more traditional model, I'll say, the physical plant. I don't know how successful that is. Do you have any idea about how successful that is? I think I lost you there again, David. I think I lost you. Oh, you're back. Yeah. I wonder if I turn off my video or what could happen. That's quite all right. All right. I think this is a great test case. I'm becoming very good at this. It's, it's, yeah. I'm enjoying the fact that I have this experience. Okay. Um, I, I, you were talking about Leonard Florence when you right Leonard Florence and and Chelsea and uh, he, Barry Berman went and raised money to transform Chelsea Jewish. But for those places that are not going to do that or can't do that, I know the Pioneer Network is working successfully with many places around the country. I'm going to be interviewing uh, Penny Cook in a couple of weeks. Um, and there are places that are really embracing that mindset. But what about what about those places that are not or can't or what are you finding with your research in that area? Yeah, it, everything we've seen is that this is really a problem of the haves and the have-nots in, in long-term care. That when you look at the facilities that have generally been able to undertake culture change uh, activities, um, whether it's major culture change like you just described, like a greenhouse, but even 
kind of uh, more um, less capital based, kind of more um, uh, care based, which are, are are equally as important, if not more so. It's about it's about the culture. After all, it's culture change. It's not right. about capital change. It's right. culture change. But changing uh, you know a- aspects of of you know the the the, the culture uh, in the building. Um, in both instances, it's it's uh, higher income facilities, fewer Medicaid uh, residents, more likely to be nonprofit, uh, you know, wealthier communities, uh, every, everything you would expect, Phyllis. And so, um, th- this is a policy problem. How do you encourage culture change in facilities that that uh, uh, don't have those those same financial advantages? And I, I, I think it, there's a couple of points here. One, you need, you need leadership. How do we get good leaders into those? You know, it comes back to leadership. But then, right, which is exactly what I was thinking as you were speaking. Yeah, but beyond leadership, they still need the resources to make this happen on the ground. And so we, we need to, to put uh, the, these activities into the payment system, uh, making certain that we're rewarding the kinds of uh, uh, activities that, that are consistent with uh, resident-centered and resident-directed care. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it has to do with mindset and what motivates people to make that shift in mindset. Will it be that they see that from a financial point of view, it would be beneficial to them to make that change in mindset? I think I could, I could just speak from the people I know. Uh, that's not just going to happen. There's, there's going to be, have to be something that's going to make them see there's a need to change that mindset. It's, and it's not, uh, it can't be legislated either. It's no No. different to me, like legislating the end of, um, you know, segregation or end, you know, or, you know, legislating the Voting Rights Act. And yet you see what happens. You can't change people's mindset through legislation. In order to make these policies sustainable, you know, you need uh, you you need sort of the the behavior on the ground. Uh, you need the the changes in culture and delivery. And you're right; like the policies themselves are necessary, but not sufficient. Once again, that you you, you really need to change the, the 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 entire leadership model, culture, attitude in these facilities. And you can't legislate that, as you said. That that's that's um, on the other hand. If you don't have the policies in place, then it's not going to be sustainable, in my opinion. And that once that good leader leaves, if she goes to another nursing home or retires, and then uh, you're, you, you tend to revert right back to where you were pre-pandemic. And we, we've seen that a lot uh, in, in facilities that had a, had a great leader or a great culture for a while, but ultimately it just wasn't sustainable without the, without the policies in place. So I'm thinking of two things in response to that. One is... Is there any work being done that you know of in programs that train administrators? Yeah, I, that, that, I, could, that could be a that could be a place to to start. And the other thing I'm thinking of is that if people start to demand that this is not good enough, uh, that this is not acceptable, because not only is it not acceptable for their loved one, it, it can't be acceptable for them. Uh, which is probably coming down the road sooner than later, then I think maybe both sides. But as we're speaking, and I've been thinking about this in terms of uh, programs that educate um, administrators, 
What about... Uh, I, I, I love that idea, and I think we, we give administrators, we ask them to basically run a, a multi-million dollar business, but probably uh, don't give them the real tools to, to undertake some of the kinds of activities we're describing. And I, I don't know if a typical administrator had, prior to entering a, a nursing home, knows anything about culture change, and they're, they're probably thinking dollars and cents and not thinking uh, uh, you know, about, about the care needs and how, how best to kind of meet those and actually uh, not just care needs, but the, the sort of life of, of, of these residents and, and how fulfilling to, to make it. The other side you, you described, we've been talking a lot about, I guess, the, the, the nursing home side of this. And um, I, I think it's worth flipping it around and saying another real kind of impetus for change is going to be all of us. And uh, we're going to demand something different. And going back to the pandemic, once again, We've seen, uh, you know, I, I think I think a lot of people have preferred not to think about nursing homes. That you know, that's that's somebody else's care. That maybe you have a parent that goes through this, and you begin to sort of uh, think about it. But for the most part, nobody's been willing to pull back that that curtain. This pandemic has really made us pull back the the curtain and really look really closely at this. And I I do hope that it's going to lead to some major changes and and kind of. What, what we want from this and that what we want from this is actually for the first time maybe going to make long-term care a, a major policy issue. I think it's been this forgotten policy issue in D.C. Uh, it's been way overlooked. It's, 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 it's really an afterthought. And this is an opportunity to put it front and center and say, let's craft a long-term care policy that isn't just, oh, yeah, this is somewhere I go, but rather this is, this is, this is my life. This is what, you know, I want purpose. Uh, I, you know, I don't just want care. I want, uh, I want a meaningful life. And how do, how do we ensure that? And we, we know there's models that do that. But I think if I, if I went to DC and, and tried to talk to uh, most, most representatives or, or, or senators, um, I, I don't think most are aware of like culture change and these small home models and greenhouse. And I think if I asked them what a nursing home is, they'd think of that big institutional place right. that, you know, uh, that, 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 so many of us are, are trying to move away from. So we have a lot of work to do to educate our, our, our policymakers. But uh, I, I agree with you. There, there, I, my hope is there's, there's the, the, isn't just asking leadership to change or policy to change, but rather us doing it and, and demanding well, it. So the grass, uh, there has to be a grassroots effort as well. It's interesting that you said to me that you think most people in Washington, policymakers or wherever, even in the state, maybe don't know about culture change or, change or greenhouse or whatever. But I, I hate to say it, that most people in nursing homes don't know about it either. And when I first learned about this years ago, when I started doing research and decided to write books and stepped out of the space, I, most people don't know much about it. Oh, I, I, I think very early on in our lives, we are taught what a what a nursing home is and it's this very narrow definition and I have an eight-year-old daughter I I've never asked her this I would hope because she's my daughter maybe she knows about alternate models but if I asked her what's a nursing home I, I think she'd probably give an answer oh it's kind of like a hospital for for older adults and I, I hate that answer because that's not what a nur nursing home is where it's a home the word home is in there I agree with you that the word nursing is in there too but it, I, I, it is somebody's home and I, I would want us to start there that 
but how do, how do we um, give the individuals living there and the individuals working there uh, the feel of, that they're, they're working at somebody's home and, li- and this is my home that, I, that I'm living at? You know, right, right before we go, I believe it's in Australia that they are called aged care homes. And I think that when I saw that, I was like, well, that's a little more appropriate or a long-term care home. What about just a long-term care home? Yeah, um, I, I, I would love to see us rebrand yeah. <laughs> nursing homes. I think the industry, maybe, David, I'd be willing to work with you on that. <laughs> I'd love that. I mean, in a way, that's what's needed. Yeah, and, and and not just uh, we. Uh, this isn't you know maybe maybe we're underselling of the rebranding of it, reimagining. Uh, right. I, I agree with you. What's on the other side of this isn't isn't this big institutional facility where staff are underpaid and uh, residents are mistreated? No, this is this is really it's it's reimagining the entire model. Right. And you're right. Why why would I want to call this this new place a nursing home when everyone has this negative connotation? Um, I, I can't tell you the number of people. Um, Let's say, ooh, nursing. I just had they have a reaction when I tell them what I what I do, and I I I, I try to you know explain that you know wait a second that this is where we'll all live someday, and you know we need to start trying to change this. And by the way, like there there are a lot of uh, you know really hardworking individuals in these settings, and you know I, when you think about who's who's getting care there and who's who's providing care. I always try to frame it as that rather than, oh, these, these are, you know, we've seen the headlines, whether it's the New York Times or right. death, death pits and these kinds right. of, it's offensive. We, you know, I, I, I know we have a lot of problems in, in, in nursing homes, but uh, we, we, we need to start working towards fixing those problems and not forgetting that this is ultimately about, as, as you said, the older, older adults that live there and, and the individuals that are, that are working there. Yeah, I think that there's a, a lot of, the idea that othering going on. It's about those people over there. It has nothing to do with me. It is, it has something to do with you when it's your loved one, somebody in your family that you think is cute or maybe not, but (laughs) (laughs) that's another issue. But it's about, it's about othering people. It's about other people. And I came across something and I, I'm, I'm, I think my next article is going to be about this very thing about, the idea of othering, and uh, the fact that why not call us all emerging elders? Because we really are. And maybe if we start to internalize that, if we start to think about it that way, think of ourselves that way, maybe we'll uh, not identify ourselves with being quote unquote old, but identify ourselves with being on this journey and that it's a journey to get to that point. That's Absolutely. Your life doesn't end at that at some right. point before that. It's still a part part of your life. Right. And it, it's 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 worth uh, investing in that and planning. And it's such that uh, you have the, the most fulfilling life possible. Right. And we, we know many nursing homes aren't 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 meeting that right now. And, and we can do so much better. Absolutely. Well, David, I can't thank you. And this was a great conversation. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. And uh I, I think it comes back to the to the title of, of, of your book again. It's a, it's it's about dignity and respect, right? And that, like, how do we how do we get that for for our older adults, and how do we get that for the individuals working in these settings? And uh, I I, um, I I know we'll both keep working towards that. Absolutely. So I I want to thank all our listeners for joining us today, and 
to continue listening to our senior straight talk. And this is Phyllis Amon signing off. And please remember to like, click and share our episodes. And I can't thank you enough, David Grabowski, for your work, for your insight, for your for sharing your time with me today. So until next time, stay safe, stay well, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. Join your host, Phyllis Amon, again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms.